We have been looking at a number of psalms, and we'll turn to another one this morning, Psalm 127, which is found on page 657, if you're using a pew Bible here, page 657, Psalm 127. And if you are playing uh, Bible Trivial Pursuit, and someone asks you which two psalms Uh, are attributed to King Solomon, David's son. One of them is Psalm 127. The other one is Psalm 72. But as we look at this psalm, we want to ask a couple of questions, and one is this. How do we think about our work and our lives? Where does our work fit into our lives? And where does the success of our work come from? Hear now the word of God. Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your scriptures. And we thank you in particular for this psalm. And we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to see our lives and especially our work in proper perspective. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When I was growing up, I I grew up in a church-going family, and we went to worship every Sunday, and I I don't remember how often I went to to Sunday school, but we, I don't remember reading the Bible with our family ever, and so I realized as I was getting older that I didn't know much about the Bible. I was only learning about it in the worship service, which by the way is why I I include a lot of scripture in the worship services here, so that if nowhere else, you will get it here, though I do encourage you to read the Bible on your own. But I was, I was beginning to realize, and, I, and more so as I look back on it than at the time probably, that I was becoming, as I grew up going to a public school, that, that I was becoming more secular in my outlook. In fact, I might even call myself a deist. Some of our founding fathers, such as Thomas Jefferson, were, were deists. Uh, and what do deists believe? Well, deists believe essentially that God, there, there's a God who created the world, but he's like a great divine watchmaker. He created it, and then he wound it up, and the, and the world just ticks on its own like, like a watch. And so he's not actively involved anymore. He's, he's put these laws in place, and things govern themselves. There are laws of gravity and these other laws of nature. But he's not so active in the world today. I think that's somewhat what I was thinking, even though I grew up in church, and yes, I, I knew about Jesus and as I was growing up and read the Apostles' Creed with our church and other things, but I, I think I was a bit confused about some of these things. But Psalm 127 
And the rest of the authors of the Bible do not give us a, a deistic view of the Bible. God's not this divine watchmaker who winds it up and then lets it run and then he just stands back with his hands at a distance. No, he is actively involved. He's the one providing. He's the one governing. And yes, there's, there's mystery to how he does that for sure. And suffering is a difficult part of, of his plan as, it, as they get unfold here in this life. But God is not distant like the Enlightenment thinkers and some of our founding fathers thought. No, he's actively involved today, even as he was at that time. He is not passive. And our endeavors will not succeed in this life unless he blesses them. That's one of the things that we see here in this psalm. The psalm begins with, with two titles, which, which are part of the original text as we look at them. The first title is, says, A Song of Ascents. And we saw last week Psalm 122, which was also a song of ascents. And we mentioned that these are, are pilgrim songs that likely the, the children of Israel, as they were going to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship God three times a year, uh, would chant a, a, as they went on these spiritual journeys to the house of God. And one theologian, as I was reading this week, mentioned that Psalm 27 is the pinnacle. It's like a pyramid. There are seven songs of ascent, starting with 120 to 126. Then he described 127 at the top, and then 128 to 134, the remaining songs of ascent, with Psalm 27 being at the top there. Think of worshipers journeying, going to Jerusalem, worshiping God, singing these psalms as they went. The second title that you see there in Psalm 127 is, is of Solomon, which we might also translate by Solomon. Again, only two Psalms, one, this one, 127, and Psalm 72, are attributed to Solomon, which most likely means that he was the author of, of both of these Psalms, including the one we're looking at this morning. And Solomon, we read earlier in our scripture reading, uh, was the third king of Israel. He was affluent, but sadly, and he, he was described as a wise man. We have a lot of our wisdom literature that was written by King Solomon. And yet, sadly, as his life went along, he didn't follow a lot of what he learned and received and shared, shared with us and with others through the scriptures. But here's how the psalm begins. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord Yahweh watches over the city. The watchman stays awake in vain. How do we make our work count? How is our work meaningful for us? And how is it not in vain? By acknowledging our total dependence upon God for its success. Whatever the work is, whether it's work we get paid for or work that we, we don't get paid for. A lot of work we don't. Uh, specifically parenting. But there's a, there's a mystery between the relation between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And this psalm implicitly affirms both God's sovereignty, he's in control over all things, all things that happen throughout life, and yet human responsibility, that we are responsible for, for doing things. He reveals how we're to live and we're responsible for carrying those, those commands that he gives us out. 
Solomon mentions a number of common human activities here in Psalm 127, activities that were as common in his day 2,900 years ago as they are in our day. And one of them is building a house. We all need some kind of shelter or dwelling to, to live in. Some of us have bigger dwellings. Some of us have smaller dwellings. But we all need some kind of place that keeps us warm on cold winter nights or dry on wet nights. And here in the U.S., we were, I think most of us, if not all of us, are well aware that there's a shortage of, of houses that have been built over the last decade or so. And the, so supply is low and prices are, are high. And, and so the affordability of housing is an important issue right now in our county and in our nation in many respects. But individuals and, and families need a place to, to lay their head at night and to eat as well. And there are people who know how to build homes, and some of you in this room know how to build homes as well. But as we look at, at other Psalms of Ascent, we understand the, that the house mentioned here may not just be any house that anyone builds. It can be applied that way or translated that way. But more specifically, in the context of these songs of the pilgrims going to Jerusalem, the house in mind here is most likely the house of the Lord, the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem. House has a number of different meanings in in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. And in King David's time, he wanted to build a temple, but God said, no, it won't be you. It will be your son who builds the house. In fact, God promises to David, not that David would build a house, but that God would build David's house. House, not just temple, but also his dynasty, his family tree, so that a king would continue to come from the line of David. In fact, in, in the promise that God makes in 2 Samuel 7, 11, the Lord declares to you, that is to David, that the Lord will make you a house. David's not going to make God a house. God is going to make David a house, a dynasty. I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall come from your who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he began to do that through his son, Solomon. So there's more than one way to, to build a house, either by erecting a dwelling place where we lay our head, or a temple, or raising up a family, a family tree, a dynasty. But either way, whether it's David's building or Solomon's building or ours, we are dependent upon God for our success. And this is true of our other human endeavors as well. Psalm 126, the psalm right before this, mentions sowing and reaping. We might call it farming. Farmers can sow, but they will not reap a harvest without God's hand and success upon their labors. And so Yahweh, God, who, as he reveals his covenant name, and he alone gets credit for the success of building the house of the work that we do. doesn't mean we don't have responsibilities, that we don't need to make effort. Of course we do. We need to work hard. But it's God's will that builders build and farmers farm. Hard work and diligence are needed. And yet, they're not enough. They're insufficient for success without God's blessing. Our labors are in vain. So if there's building a house... And the second common activity that's mentioned here is guarding the city. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. 
Cities usually had walls in those days, and watchmen had to, to look out day and night in case enemies came, especially for surprise attacks at night. And in Ezekiel 33, we read of a watchman who does, if he does his job by warning the people of an attack, he will be guiltless before the Lord, regardless of what happens, if he lets people know. To give a smaller example from the scriptures, King Saul became jealous of David before he became the king of Israel. David was a successful warrior and Saul was getting jealous and so he, he set out to put David to death. And as he kept making advances toward David, David was fleeing and running away from him. At one point, they're near each other in hiding. Uh, and, and David has an opportunity and David's men to kill King Saul. And one of the reasons is that, that the Lord has put a deep sleep over Saul and his, the people who are supposed to be protecting him, such that David can take his sword, Saul's sword, from him and kill him in a moment's notice, but he refuses to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 12, So David took the spear and the jar from Saul's head. These were Saul's jar and Saul's spear. And they went away. He didn't kill him. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. What's happening here? Yahweh, the covenant Lord, the Lord protects David and grants success to David while Saul's people who are guarding him fail to protect him the way they're supposed to. Unless the Lord watches over the city, watches over the king, Jerusalem, the watchman stays awake in vain. Yes, watchmen are called to stay awake, and it takes human effort and diligence to do so. Remember Jesus' disciples who couldn't stay awake with them either the night before he was to be, to be put to death at the cross. Yes, it takes human effort, it takes diligence to stay awake and to alert the city of an upcoming attack, but this is not enough. Yes, the workers to do his work. It's, he's responsible for doing his work. We're responsible for doing our work. And yet that's not enough for success. God holds the watchmen responsible for the work they do or fail to do. And that's true of us as well. But we don't stand a chance of defeating our enemies unless God blesses the efforts, unless he protects the city. And that city in mind here is likely the city of Jerusalem especially. Again, in these two examples, building and protecting, it's, it's Yahweh. It's Yahweh and God alone who gives success and gets the credit for our success if we have success in our labors. So my question for you this morning is how do you think about your work? And how do you think about your life? And how do you think about success even? There's a danger in thinking either that our work matters too much living as if it all depends upon us and not trusting in God. There's another danger of, of course, of, of thinking that our work matters too little and not taking our responsibilities too seriously enough. But the, the danger here that's in view in verse 2 is more that we take ourselves and our work too seriously, that, that we don't trust God for the results. Verse 2 says, It is in vain that you, it is futile, that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. 
There's nothing necessarily wrong with rising early or going to late, late to rest. Hard work requires getting up early and perhaps staying up late at times. But what do these activities tell us about our attitude toward God? Are we working, waking up early and staying up late because we're not trusting God to provide for our needs? Are we living as if it all depends on us rather than trusting God for the results? Remember the farmer in Mark chapter 4 who planted the seed. That was his responsibility, but slept at night. Are we acting as if it's all under our control? And it raises a couple of other questions as well. Who are we working for? And why are we working? How do we keep work in perspective? I know that a number of you are in in positions where, where you're being asked to work incredible hours. It's out of control in our society. There are worker shortages. And it becomes very difficult to to keep this in perspective when that happens. Eating the bread of anxious toil, the psalmist writes Solomon. Living as if our success is completely dependent on us, as if it doesn't come from God's hand. And this is offensive to God, and the Israelites were guilty of doing this when they entered the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 14, The Israelites had gone into the promised land. God had brought them safely into the promised land. But there was a temptation that they faced, and that was to to forget Yahweh, to forget the Lord. This is what what it says in Deuteronomy 8. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full, and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget Yahweh. You forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Even sleep is a gift from God. Maybe you're saying especially sleep is a gift from God. He gives sleep to his beloved, we read here. Interestingly, Solomon's other name is Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. And so this verse may have a double meaning here as, as a reference to Solomon himself, but also to readers who know themselves to be beloved by God, loved by God. And I know that there can be many reasons why people may not be able to sleep at night. But I find it very interesting that our society, which is wealthier than most, I know not everybody is, find it harder to sleep. You would think that those who have more resources would be able to sleep better. But the reality is that those who trust God and trust in God, whether their resources be large or small, are often the ones usually the ones who sleep better. There's a peace of mind that comes from casting our cares upon God and knowing that he cares for us. And so if our attitude is it it all depends on me, it all depends on me, we become anxious, and it leads to anxious toil, as is mentioned here. One of the ways that the Israelites failed to remember God is by keeping the fourth commandment, which is the Sabbath rest. Six days of work and one day of rest and worship. And so we need this morning, as we think about how this applies to our lives, 
to commit our work to the Lord, to pray about our work and our society, again, which, which doesn't have this in good perspective right now, and I know is creating burnout for a lot of people. And we need to think about how we respond and pray about how we respond in these kinds of, of circumstances where there's more and more pressure to work all the time, either coming from others or perhaps self-imposed as well. Work is a gift, yes, but sleep is a gift as well. And, and work needs to be sustainable. And that's why God gives and commanded a Sabbath rest. But there's another gift besides sleep here that Solomon mentions in verses 3 through 5. And that is the gift of families and children. Verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Growing up, I, I learned and, and believed, and I still believe today, that the family is the basic building unit of society. The family is, is most important, more important than the individual even. Obviously, we need to be concerned for every individual member, but the family as a whole has now been replaced by the individual in the I world that we, we live in. The individual is the unit of society rather than the family. And that has left a lot of people isolated from one another. And children are not highly valued in our society. They're perceived as a burden rather than a blessing. But another way that God builds the house is families, and families having children. Children played a protective role for their parents, Solomon says in, in verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. And yes, children start out as consumers, but today's young children, which require a lot of work to bring up, are tomorrow's producers, and they become family protectors as they grow up here. Arrows provide defense in the hand of a warrior, and the more arrows one has, the more likely one can defeat his enemies. So Solomon gives us another application here in verse 5. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, with children. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And these children, when they grow up, can either defend their parents physically at the gate or legally, because the gate is where business and legal transactions in a city, in the city of Jerusalem and other cities, ancient cities, took place. Children will rise up in God's providence and defend their parents. Mothers and fathers will have an advocate in their children. And we know that this kind of role is, role is still important today. When a person goes into the hospital, an, an older relative, for instance, who helps him or her make decisions about what, which treatment is needed? It's often family members. We all need an advocate. And they don't always come from our families, but they often do. Spiritually, though, we also need an advocate. And the ultimate advocate that the Bible gives us is Jesus Christ. He came from the house of David. After Solomon and every other king failed to live up to God's standards and to live a life that was pleasing to him and to rule in ways that were fully pleasing to him, God sent his one and only son to build his house, to be our advocate so that the God the Father might not be put to shame at the city gate as well. And yes, Jesus is the ultimate builder of the house of God. As a descendant from the house of David, as the angel Gabriel confirmed in Luke chapter 1, he, Jesus, will be great 
and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Yes, Jesus came from the family tree of David. And yes, he was put to shame at the cross so that we ultimately would not be put to shame on the day of judgment. He, Jesus, this advocate, was crucified. But on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And he, along with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, is the one who gives us success in our labors as we think about our work so that they are not in vain. He's the one who will build his spiritual temple, the church as well. We're told in Matthew chapter 16. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As with building physical houses or watching over earthly cities or with farming or any other human endeavor, in God's purposes, we have a role to play. We are called to work hard, whether it's the, the, the callings that we have of doing our work, whatever our daily callings are, but also the work of his church, the work of making disciples. And this begins, of course, in our families. We're called to do good works, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, not to earn God's favor, but rather to do the work that he's called us and and prepared in advance for us to do. He invites us to participate in the process of telling people about Jesus and making disciples, bearing witness to him, both with our lives as well as with our lips. Baptizing and teaching, but ultimately he gets the credit. He gets the glory for any success, for any good results that come. In fact, we're reminded of Jesus' words in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We we aren't going to be successful. We can't be successful in our work inside the church or outside the church apart from him. We must depend upon God and trust in him to provide the success, the results that we need. And one of the ways that he builds his church is by working through Christian families who have children and Christian parents passing on the Christian faith to their children. This requires an intentionality on our parts, both as churches as well as parents, even while we trust God for the results. It's not all in our control. It doesn't all depend upon us, and yet we do have responsibilities. As we were discussing this uh, passage in preparation this, this Wednesday before, Fred Carr was, was participating with us, and he asked our men's small group on Zoom, how do we as a church help parents? How do we as a church help parents in this area? And I don't think there's one answer to this question only. Certainly part of it has to be helping disciple parents because you can't give to your kids what you don't have in your possession for yourself. If you're not growing in a vibrant faith with Jesus Christ, you can't offer that to your children. It's it's like the airline's analogy here in terms of put your own mask on. Get the oxygen of the gospel for yourself before you tend to your children. So there's part of that. And then, of course, there's how how do we help parents 
pass on the good news to their children. And certainly one component of that has got to be reading at home, reading the Bible together at home as families. Um, That's one of the things that I didn't have so much growing up, and, and I think it makes a world of difference. Again, it takes more than that. It takes God to bless the results of that. But that's part of what what God asks us to do as as parents. And parents, you may have some ways in which you think we can help you, and I'd like to know what they are if you want to share them with us. How can we as a church help you better in in this process so that you're not alone, that we're in this together? There are a lot of obstacles out there these days, challenges to passing the faith on to children. But Jesus is not just about nuclear families and those being built, although that's part of it, and extended families, but also that the family of God, the church, might also be built up. Jesus, who never married, was, was told that, or said that his mother and his brothers, when he was told that his mother and his brothers were seeking him, here's what he said. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, He said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, he's not suggesting that that the church replace the family. But the the family, the spiritual family, is an important part of, of our experience here on this earth. And Paul also affirms this. He's concerned with widows and the kind of care that they get. When he mentions in 1 Timothy 5, verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are really widows. In other words, if people have have families that can help them, those families should help them, but there are going to be people that don't have families and the church needs to help with those. But again, as we come back and we think about how this applies, Yahweh is the one who, who defends. He's the one who builds his house whether, and gives us success in our work, in our work as individuals, as families, and as churches. He's the one who defends his chosen city of Jerusalem. And when he chooses not to defend it, as he does when it, it, it's defeated by its enemies and it goes into exile in 587, That's his prerogative as well. We need to trust in this God, whose name is Yahweh. And we know him in the New Testament as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's the one who builds houses, who makes our work fruitful, who gives us success in our work, who helps us build families, who builds his church, who strengthens us. And he wants us to come to him in prayer and cast our cares upon him. And recognize that, that he is the one who is responsible for the work, for the results. He gives us work to do. We do have responsibilities. But we need to keep it in perspective and know that the results are in his hand. Will you trust him for that? Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this passage that reminds us, that helps us understand our work in perspective that it doesn't all depend on us. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be living in the world as, as orphans, that we're not all by ourselves, that, Lord, we can trust you for the results. In fact, we need to trust you for the results. Forgive us for not 
trusting you for the results, for acting as if it all depends upon us and not committing our work in prayer and casting our cares and anxieties upon you. Lord, we know that these are difficult times that we live in, and we ask that you would help us to keep our work in perspective. Lord, we pray also for the work of building families, and I thank you for those families here with children in the home right now. We ask that you would give them strength, give them wisdom, give them unity as they parent, and help us as a church to help them as well. Lord, the results are in your hands. We can't convert anybody, but help us, Lord, to be good examples and good teachers so that they might grow up from a young age to believe in you, to trust in you, even as we ask you to help us do that as well. We pray this in Jesus' name.